Hello and welcome to this edition of Tech Telemedicine Tomorrow, Answers for Healthcare's Digital Trends. I'm your host, Tony Pasolacqua. Today I have special guest Jim Boston from Boston and Hughes, and we are going to discuss the art of the second opinion. Just for any of our uh, listeners out there, Jim has about 36 years of experience. He's been in thousands of cases, and he has mainly focused on medical liability. Uh, for more information on Jim, please go to his website. It's bostonhughes.com. Hughes is spelled H-U-G-H-E-S. So Jim, uh, one of the things that I know a lot of people are, are trying to understand sometimes is what is a disparaging remark? Can you give us like a quick definition on that? Sure. I mean, anytime you make a statement that is derogatory, that is designed to cast someone else in a bad light, that's a disparaging remark. I mean, if you look at the political theater, politicians are always making statements to try to cast the opposing party in a disparaging light so the electorate will hopefully choose to vote for somebody else. So when you're making a statement about another physician's care, it's important to understand that the patient is going to read into your body language, your affect, your demeanor, your vocabulary, what they want to see. And if there's anything potentially negative there, they're going to seize on it. So be careful to either remain neutral, if you can, or not say anything disparaging that is not absolutely truthful and backed up by hard evidence. Have you seen any instances where disparaging remarks are used inside of a brick-and-mortar location? Well, I've recently seen one in which a patient who went to an orthopedic surgeon and was unhappy with the result went to another orthopedic surgeon and showed him the x-rays. And according to the patient, the second orthopedic surgeon said he would not treat her because he does not operate on other physicians' screw-ups. Well, you know, that's a pretty clear-cut example of a physician who was intentionally trying to disparage or undermine the care provided by a previous doctor. Unless there's hard evidence to justify something like that, you probably shouldn't do it. The physician's ethics manual that governs the conduct of most physicians in this circumstance states the following. It is unethical for a physician to disparage the professional competence, knowledge, qualifications, or services of another physician to a patient or a third party, or to state or imply that a patient has been poorly managed or mistreated by a colleague without substantial evidence. So unless you have seen enough information in the medical record, radiographs, uh, maybe conversation with the previous treating physician to understand his rationale for the approach, you don't want to make disparaging remarks or critical remarks of the care provided by someone else. So how about a virtual format? Well, in the case I just described, that patient went back to my client, her primary orthopedic, and did record a conversation with him, asking specific questions about what he did and why he did it. I've seen that happen maybe two or three other times, maybe half a dozen times over the course of the last 36 years. It's not something I see often, but if I'm seeing it, it must happen more frequently. So my suggestion to doctors would be, anytime a patient wants to talk to you about the care provided, assume that your comments are being recorded. Exactly who can make disparaging remarks? Is it completely restricted to just doctors or can anyone make them? Well, anyone might make them. Uh, nurses sometimes make them. Uh, they're just speaking off the cuff. They'll see something. They may not completely understand all of the circumstances under which something was done. They just see an outcome that's 
not perfect, and they so they make a disparaging remark like, who could possibly have done this, or why was this done? Sometimes it's not the words themselves, it's the voice inflections and facial expressions used at the time the comment is made. And patients pick up on that. So even if the, the communication itself, the words that are used seem relatively innocuous on the printed page, for example, the way they're spoken suggests volumes. And so you need to be careful about how you interact with people when you're going to discuss what someone else has done. So are nurses kind of held to the same standards as physicians are if they're making any sort of remarks like that? Well, I don't know specifically from looking at any manual associated with their ethics requirements, but I would say that people have an obligation to be honest, and honesty is not necessarily your opinion. In other words, if, if you look through the physician's ethics manual, the key thing that permeates it, I know you asked about nurses, but I'm going to analogize this for a minute, is honesty and integrity. So is your comment truthful? Well, your opinion may be a true reflection of what you think, but what you think may not be a true reflection of what happened. So you need to think about whether you're actually doing the patient a benefit by making these remarks. Are you going to send them on a wild goose chase to find attorneys to hopefully represent them in a case that has no merit? Are you going to make them question medical care that was otherwise appropriate because of some doubts you've placed in their mind? I mean, it's not in the patient's best interest for you to do that. So you have to consider the possible ramifications of those things when you're making comments. And I think that's true of both physicians and nurses, the same ethical obligation to put the patient first, to be a patient advocate, to do what's in their best interest, applies to both. And like I said, when you think about what's in the patient's best interest, it may not be in their best interest to mislead them by a derogatory comment that on reflection you'll later wish you hadn't made. So with that being said, do we sometimes see competitors sometimes plant those seeds of deceit? You do, and where I've seen that most frequently is in a hospital setting where one physician is trying to help a peer review committee alleviate the other physician of their hospital privileges and therefore eliminate competition. And it often happens where the physician who's being investigated will tell me that the doctor whose comments sparked the investigation was in direct economic conflict with them or in competition with them. Now, hospital bylaws specifically state that you're not supposed to, that as a peer review committee, is not supposed to use as evidence against another physician a competitor's comments who may have an ulterior motive for the statements that they've made. But people are people. And if the person sparking the investigation is influential at the hospital, whether they're in direct economic competition or not, it's going to cause an inquiry. That's where I've seen it. I've never seen a situation where I could prove that a second opinion or a second look at a case was um, negatively interpreted based on economic benefit or economic competition. It's always been in the hospital peer review setting. One of the things I just want our listeners to know is if you have medical malpractice insurance, uh, double check with your carrier. Sometimes if there's a peer review, that may be covered underneath your policy. Jim, have you ever seen competitors recruit a patient to make these remarks, let's say like on an online review or something like that? I have, actually. Um, the last time I saw this was in a Texas Medical Board scenario in which a subsequent treating physician was seeing patients of a previous practice. And coincidentally, those same two or three patients who had changed physicians to this other one made medical board complaints about the same type of issues. So the conclusion that my client reached was that the second physician was recruiting these patients to file board complaints on issues that were troubling to the second physician. The, the first complaint 
was summarily dismissed. The second complaint, though, uh, because it involved the same issues, is being taken more seriously. So does it happen? Yes. Now the question is, is it, it's, in my mind, is, is it ethical to do that? I don't think it's ethical to try to encourage patients to file complaints who don't otherwise want to unless there is such obvious medical neglect that something needs to be done. So if you take it back to the American College of Physicians ethics manual, there is an obligation to help a patient resolve a dispute. There is an obligation to make sure that patients get good quality medical care. So I could see a scenario in which a physician sees a patient or more than one patient from a previous doctor, and based on what the patient says, they truly believe that the care being provided by this other physician is substandard. The issue becomes in that situation, should the physician acknowledge it and tell the patient to file a board complaint? And there's an argument that maybe they should. But if the motive is simply to cut another physician out of competition by recruiting patients to make complaints they wouldn't otherwise want to make on their own, then I think that's unethical. We've kind of covered a lot of these different topics about the second opinion and how it can be used against you. Uh, do you have any suggestions on ways to handle a second opinion if you agree with it? If a patient comes to me as a second physician and asks me whether recommended care by a first physician is something they should pursue, that's a situation in which no previous care has yet been provided. The patient is just doing their homework. They want to know if the care recommended by physician one is something physician two agrees with. I think that's fine. If physician two says, no, I think I would probably take a different approach, now the patient has something else to think about. That's a different scenario than evaluating care already provided and making disparaging remarks about the quality of it or the quality of the doctor who provided it. A personal example. I've had a number of injuries in my life. I went to one orthopedic surgeon, and I said, do you think, what do you think? He said, well, you can have an operation or not. Well, that's not very specific. So I went to another orthopedic surgeon, and he said, no, I don't think you should have one. I think that operation would be as damaging as the injury you have. So I'm just doing my homework. I'm not asking him to evaluate other care provided in retrospect to see if it was done properly. I'm just trying to find out which way I should go. And I think physicians have an obligation to help patients make those decisions, so that's not a problem. Let's say care has been rendered and there's now a, a patient that comes in and says, hey, would you have done it this way? And then you start to provide advice. Does that kind of change the dynamics? I actually had a situation recently where a patient goes to a colon and rectal surgeon for an evaluation of colon cancer. And the surgeon intraoperatively determines that in the ascending colon, there was a tumor that needed to be resected. But residing alongside was another colon that's sometimes called a duplication cyst. It's a rare condition where a person has a twin colon that's essentially not functional, but resides in the body next to either the ascending or descending colon. But there's another potential condition that exists, and that is where the person has an anatomical anomaly where the descending colon, instead of existing on the left side of the body where it does in most normal people, exists on the right side of the body next to the ascending colon. In my situation, the colon and rectal surgeon, in resecting the cancerous tumor, believed that this other colon was a duplication cyst, which needs to be removed. And so, she traced it into the retroperitoneum, didn't go retroperitoneally herself, but saw that that's where this duplication cyst went, both proximally and distally. She decided to resect it and staple it shut. Well, 
When her patient could not pass gas or stool for 10 days, it became apparent that what she had done was to remove viable colon that was aberrantly located on the right side of the body instead of the left. So the question then becomes when she goes to doctor number two and describes this scenario, what should that doctor say? On its face, it sounds as though the first surgeon committed malpractice by removing viable colon that would not otherwise have been removed but for her mistakenly diagnosing it as a duplication cyst. But when you consider the fact that this viable colon that was mistakenly removed resided right alongside and next to a cancerous colon tumor, you have to consider had the tumor eroded through the bowel wall spreading cancerous cells into what she thought was a duplication cyst, making necessary its removal. And so when I went to surgeon number two, and he was giving me the disparaging remarks about how the colon and rectal surgeon should not have made this mistake, as we brainstormed, he came to the conclusion that, you know, maybe what actually happened was she ended up sparing this patient a second operation in which that part of the colon would have been removed anyway because cancer had spread to it. So that's an illustration wherein it looks like what she did was not justifiable, but in retrospect, when you consider the potential that the cancer had spread into that part of the colon anyway, given where it was located, it might have needed to be removed. Now, the, the logical fallacy in what I'm saying is that without a pathology report proving that the cancer had invaded into the, prop, into the colon, she clearly made a mistake. It's just that serendipitously, she may have done what needed to be done anyhow. But the point I'm making is that until you have all the facts, you really don't know if what was done was justifiable or not. And while it may seem on the surface to be indefensible, in retrospect, it may actually be defensible. And that's why doctors need to be careful about what they say to patients, because you just never know what additional information is out there that might change your mind. The concept is you don't know what you don't know. And since the second surgeon wasn't there in the operation where the first surgeon removed viable colon, he really doesn't know what she saw and why it was so convincing to her that it needed to be extracted. So while the analogy is not perfect, it sort of illustrates the point that additional information not available at the time of a disparaging comment may ultimately cause one to wish to God they'd never said the disparaging comment in the first place. And that's why you need to be careful about saying things like that. Have you ever seen any instances, though, where maybe a patient or an attorney may turn around and say, we will not sue you if you provide us with a second opinion? Have you ever seen any instances like that? Yes. Uh, one notable example was where I was representing a, a general surgeon whose former partner made a deal with a plaintiff's lawyer to implicate him, my client, in exchange for not being sued, even though the doctor who made the deal was the one who committed the malpractice. It was a horrible scenario, but it happened. And it really harmed the patient because we ended up trying that case. And I ended up putting on a case to show that the plaintiff's expert, my client's former partner, was the one who committed the malpractice. I ended up actually being the plaintiff's lawyer against my client's former partner while defending him. And uh, it worked out for my client. We got a defense verdict. But the jury clearly saw after the evidence was presented that the doctor acting as the plaintiff's expert was trying to cover his own malpractice by testifying against my client. 
It worked out well, but ultimately the patient is the one who suffered because they sued the wrong party. Now the argument becomes legally, could she have turned around and sued the guy that was acting as her expert? Maybe. If her inability to discover the malpractice was because of fraud on his part, it would arguably toll the statute of limitations until she could reasonably determine that he was the one who committed the malpractice so that she could then sue him even though the statute had run, that would be an argument. But it did happen. Hmm. It did happen. Yeah, so I mean, even if you're promised that you won't get sued, you could still get pulled into that lawsuit then. That could happen. Have you ever had any instances where you've seen two parties start to critique each other online and then that gets out of control? No, I haven't seen that. I've, I've, um, I've seen patients critique their doctors. I've seen patients set up Instagram pages and Facebook pages for the sole purpose of disparaging a physician with whom they were unhappy, that sort of thing. I've never seen between two healthcare professionals that type of thing being done. Jim, do you have any sort of like risk management tips and tricks in this art of the second opinion? Well, the art of the second opinion, um, first of all, understand that anything that you say negatively, the patient's going to pick up on. So if someone comes to you asking about the care provided by another physician, you need to be careful. Again, do you have enough information to really evaluate the care that was provided by someone else and give an educated and honest opinion about whether or not that care was appropriate? Most times not. Most times you're just going to have what the patient says about the care that was given, and you're going to be responding to what they say, and what they say is inherently unreliable for several reasons, one of which is it may be inconsistent with the medical record. So you need to be careful about saying things that might be interpreted to critique the care someone else provides. My suggestion is that if a patient comes to you after experiencing a less than ideal result, focus on fixing the problem at hand as opposed to casting blame for what was done before. I think in most situations, that's your best bet. That being said, if someone comes to you on whom improper care was obviously delivered by someone who is obviously incapable of providing good care, then there may be an ethical obligation to come forward and identify that. The primary concept, the underwriting principle, is honesty and integrity. If you can't honestly evaluate the care for a lack of information, don't do it. If you have enough information and you have to honestly tell a patient that their prior care was inappropriate, then you may have an obligation to the patient to do that, but you need to be sure that your comments are based on adequate information, not just an off-the-cuff comment based on an opinion predicated on inf incomplete facts. So Jim, is there one thing that you would want to leave our listeners with? I think trying to focus on an underlying principle that governs what you do is more beneficial than trying to give specific advice about how to handle a particular patient because it's going to vary from person to person, situation to situation. If the underlying principle that you're trying to abide by is honesty, integrity, and objectivity, then you will automatically assess whether you have enough information to render an objective, honest opinion about the facts being presented to you. Do you have the medical records? Have you seen the x-rays? Have you talked to some of the consultants? Absent doing that, you may not have information that justifies making a disparaging remark about another physician's care, and you shouldn't do it. 
if on the other hand, you do have that information, you do have that knowledge, and the patient has been inappropriately treated by someone who might be a danger to the public, then you may have an obligation to the patient and to the public to condemn the other physician and his care. I think that's rare, but again, what's ob what is honest, what is ethical, what is objective? If you can find those things, if you can use that as the foundation for your approach to everything, honesty, objectivity, those ethical considerations, you're probably going to do the right thing. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you are a policyholder, please feel free to contact us with any questions by calling 1-800-580-8658 or check out our resources at tmlt.org and clicking on our resource hub. <laughs>